Hey there, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and I'm very thankful to have you tuning in today, whether it be on your ride home from work or perhaps you're vegging out in front of our new YouTube channel. A lot of great content for you guys there. And it may be a new year, it might be a new decade, but as usual, we are chasing the same goal, and that is to achieve wealth in its original meaning, which is a state of well-being. And this month's guest, which we'll feature today, is perhaps no one more fitting than him, and that is Tom Corley. So I would consider Tom a close friend, as well as a business mentor. And having shared several mutual clients over the past 10 years or so, I can certainly attest to his technical know-how, as well as his ability to connect with people on a higher level. So if you're not familiar with Tom, as he speaks pretty much around the globe at this point, allow me to give you just a brief bio. I'll do my best to summarize, but as you're gonna see, there's quite a bit of content that we can touch on. So Tom Corley is an internationally recognized authority on habits and wealth creation. His inspiring keynote addresses cover success habits of the rich, failure habits of the poor, and cutting edge change strategies, which we'll get into momentarily. Tom has spoken alongside business icons such as Mark Victor Hansen, Richard Branson, or Sir Richard Branson, I should say, Robin Sharma, and Dr. Daniel Amen, amongst many others. So Tom conducted an exhaustive five-year study on the rich and the poor, uh, in particular the ultra-rich and those actually below the poverty line, and identified over 300 daily habits that make them who they are. This study essentially looked at what separates the haves and the have-nots and eventually became the launch pad to his best-selling books, which include Rich Habits, Rich Kids, Change Your Habits, Change Your Life, and Rich Habits, Poor Habits. In addition, Tom has appeared on CBS Evening News, The Dave Ramsey Show, CNN, MSN Money, USA Today. I could go on and on here. And uh, he's now speaking in over 25 different countries, lately in Australia, and uh, does obviously quite a bit to keep busy. But by trade, Tom is a CPA as well as a CFP and holds a master's degree in taxation while heading up his financial firm here in New Jersey. So I'm very happy to have uh, Tom joining us over the airwaves as we cover a lot of different things here, in particular, how to help you find your passion and how to achieve that passion and convert that into something that's both financially rewarding and more importantly, intrinsically rewarding. So without further ado, let's welcome Tom Corley. The Kaderna Podcast. The Kaderna Podcast. So I guess just to bring our listeners up to speed, I mean, that was quite a bio. You're, you're doing so much right now that, that you're consumed with. Can you just kind of take us back to how you got to where you are, you know, even going back to college? Like, did you always know you were going to be in this financial world? No, I, you know, it's funny because, uh, I remember I, we were poor and <clears throat> I didn't even think I was going to college. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for a friend of mine who kind of dragged my butt, uh, in, into St. John's university to force me to enroll, I told him I, I have no money. My family has no money. We can't afford it. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the purpose is. And he said, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. And uh, so the figuring out part was I became a janitor. Uh, I worked 20 hours a week uh, and I was they, they were flexible because, you know, school gets out at, <clears throat> in the public schools in New York. They get out at three o'clock. And so a lot of the janitors started their work after three. And of course, college ended at around I, I scheduled it. So it, it ended around two o'clock for me. And then I, you know, I had to take the bus to. Uh, Curtis High School, and uh, I worked from three to eight. And then uh, what I would do is I would um, I would eat and go to bed, and then uh, wake up early in the morning just to get my homework done, and then go to class. So that was kind of my routine for four years. And uh, you know the the janitor work paid well, uh, so it was I was able to afford the tuition, which was about back in those days. I know people are gonna find it ridiculous but it was $2,500 a semester and uh, I was basically making about six or seven thousand dollars part-time working as a janitor so um, I, I remember I was fi I had finished up my first year in college and uh, you, 
it's at that point that you have to really figure out or matriculate. You have to pick a, a major, right? Yep. So I was sitting in the dining room doing my homework and uh, I, my dad was kind of uh, sitting in his chair and I said, hey, he, my dad was an accountant. Uh, and I said, dad, you know, uh, I've got I've to pick a major and I don't know what to do. And he said, oh, become an accountant. You'll never starve. Uh, and, and he was right. You know, the, the only reason we were poor, to, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, there's, it's a long story. It's, it could be an entire episode. But, but the, the main reason was we had 11 in our family. And, you know, even wow. my father working as an accountant, you know, which just wasn't, he didn't make a lot of money. So, uh, you know, what, but when he told me that, I said, you know, he's right. As an accountant, it's a, it's a career and uh, I'll never starve. Uh, what he didn't tell me was you'll probably never get rich either. Um, <laughs> so I ended up put, taking my ladder and putting it on my father's wall. And I climbed it for most of my career. Uh, I, I, I got a job working at Arthur Anderson and I hated it, Brian. I mean, I hated every, every minute of every day for four years. I hated it. I hated this was it. right after college. Yeah, I kind of stumbled after college, but I got my footing and then um, I, I got back on track and started studying for the CPA exam. And uh, because I, I had passed a couple of parts, Arthur, and Arthur Anderson was interested because none of the staff uh, ha that they had were had any of the parts. So they were you know kind of desperate for somebody who was going to be a CPA. So I uh, got a job working in the they gave me a choice. They said, "You, what do you want to do? You want to pick? Uh, audit. Uh, at the time, it was called uh, consulting, but it was really IT or tax. And I said, hmm, you know, tax sounds like it, a good profession. I had no idea. I saw at that spur of the moment, I, I just said uh, tax, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I went into their tax department okay. and uh, it was got... It was the god awful most boring job in the world. And <laughs> the only thing I liked about it was the clients. You know, I loved being around the clients, but uh, you know, you they work you like a dog, and and you never really have a life. So it was uh, it was just yeah. it just wasn't for me. And so then so then in I those I said, well, years, it sounded like you were doing more of kind of what you felt like you had to do as opposed to where you really wanted to be at at that point in time. Well, it's an important. It's an important point because one of the rich habits, one of the things that I found in my study was a lot of the self-made millionaires, uh, they took their ladder and they put it on their wall. They pursued something that they were passionate about, uh, particularly the dreamer entrepreneurs. And we're going to get into the four paths to wealth. But the dreamer entrepreneurs, they, they pursued something that they wanted to, to do. And uh, that that was important. I didn't. And be, when you don't, you um, it reflects lack of passion because that's what that's what is the byproduct when when you're doing something that somebody else thinks you should be doing. Uh, the lack of passion, motivation shows up in your paycheck. You know, you just you just don't put in the hours of practice and, and reading that you need to to be really expert at what you do. Uh, you just do what you have to do to get by. And and so I, I kind of did that. And I said, you know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to amp this up. Uh, I, I do like tax consulting. You know, it's a technical skill. Maybe I'll I didn't know what what it was called back then, but it was pursuing the virtuoso path, which is another path we'll talk about. I decided to get uh, go to graduate school at night and get my master's degree in taxation. I figured if I had a master's degree in taxation, I would be valuable to wh whoever and I can make more, <clears throat> more money. And uh, it, I was right. It, it, I became very expert in tax and uh, ended up getting a job at a big multinational company. Uh, they were going to go public. So it was a great opportunity. I was going to help run the tax department. Me and this other person who came from Revlon, he would be my boss, but he, he was he was a great guy. And uh, we were going to run the tax department. We had like about, you know, three or four hundred people underneath us. So it was going to be awesome. Uh, but they never went public because they, they lost money and um, it took a couple of years for them to recover. And so that never happened. Uh, so, so anyway, I 
that climbing the corporate ladder, the climber path, which was another path I, I guess I was pursuing, uh, that didn't pan out for me. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I ended up, um, we, we took our tax department and outsourced it. And what we did is I had been at a seminar and I, there was a trend going on where the big companies were, were outsourcing a lot of their tax work to the big firms. And I said to my boss, why don't we outsource ourselves? You know, and because, and you know, the, the company that we worked for, they were always looking to cut back on personnel. Uh, so we talked them into it. And we started a, a CPA firm where we did nothing but large corporate tax compliance. We had Revlon, we had Merck, we had a lot of big clients and we did all of their uh, tax compliance and their tax provision. And, it, you know, it was a lot of work and it was a decent job. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were doing pretty well for ourselves, but one, one of my, um, one of my clients uh, hired me because they needed to do something called an E&P study. And um, I had done that at Arthur Anderson. In fact, I was one of the few that knew how to do it. And so when he asked me if I knew how to do an E&P study, uh, I told him, oh, you must be selling your business. And he was publicly held. So he said, well, nobody's supposed to know that. How did you figure that out? And I explained it what to him. What is that just for some people that might not be familiar? Um, when, when you're a big company, when you're doing a merger and acquisition, or you're going to sell uh, a business segment, um, an EMP study essentially tracks your earnings and profit for that segment. Uh, okay. Because uh, when you do the disposition, if um, you don't have any earnings, the, uh, the transaction could, could be tax you know there could be no tax cost to it right this is no you know the way that the tax law works is uh whenever you sell a business you have a capital gain if you have any distributions that result which is always the case usually in a, in, a, in a sale uh the distributions could be taxable if you have earnings and profit or not taxable so this was important to the shareholders who didn't want to be taxed on on any uh, redemption of their stock, right? So uh, he ended up, I did the EMP study for him and he, I, I guess I did a pretty good job. And he said, I want you to come on board and help me run. <clears throat> they, they, after the sale, they were gonna have about $88 million. <clears throat> and my- This happened was, while you were out on your own as you were like a contractor yeah, to this? So I, I had to leave my CPA firm uh, because they were paying me a lot of money. Back in those days, it was a lot of money, about 200,000. And okay. uh, I said, okay, I, I'll leave. Um, and I ended up becoming the CFO of, of the company, the publicly held company. And I was there for about four years. And it just never, we never could really find, you know, was, when we were basically a private equity firm and we had yep. invested in about 10 different companies and, you know, only one of them really kind of panned out. And, and But it's, you know, it wasn't enough for the, you know, the owner, the main shareholder of the company. And he said, I, I, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. So I said, all right, well, uh, I had a little bit of money and I ended up buying a CPA firm, basically buying myself a job. Okay. Uh, and one of the reasons was that when I was the CFO of that publicly held company, they had relocated me twice and they wanted me to relocate a third time. And I, I, I threw up my hands and I said, I, I'm done. I'm not relocating anymore. I'm not going to go to Vero Beach, Florida, where they wanted me to go. I said, yep. it, you know, my wife, I don't see my wife and my kids as, as is, and I can't do this to them. So sure. I ended up leaving and bought a CPA firm and almost out of the gate, Brian, um, back in 2004, a uh, client, a, a, a business client of ours that had been with us for a while, his, his, even his father had had been with us. They he, they had owned an auto body shop and the son had taken it over and he had been running it for a number of years. Um, but he was he was running it, I wouldn't say poorly, he was doing an average job, but uh, the company kept losing money. And one of the reasons I found out was his salary compared to the other the other 
people in his industry was about thirty or $40,000 higher than everybody else. Well, in, in a small auto body shop, that's, you know, that's, you know, that could be why you're losing money. And he was, he was losing about twenty to $30,000 a year. And this went on for something like 12 or 13 years. And finally his bank had shut down his line of credit. They termed it, they call, they call it terming a line of credit, uh, converting yep. it to a term loan. And uh, he, he had no access to capital any longer and he couldn't make payroll. So he came to my office late one night to meet with me and he wanted me to find like do throw a Hail Mary pass and find him a, a bank that could give him a line of credit by that Friday. I think it was Monday when we were meeting. So I told him I'm not going to be able to do that. It's impossible. It's going to take months, you know, if that, if I can get it done. And so he started breaking down and crying right in front of me. This was a big guy. He was like six foot four. He was like 300 pounds. He was a huge guy. And he started crying and he, he just broke down and said, what, you know, what is it that I'm doing wrong? What are your successful clients doing that I'm not doing? And so I started investigating it. And uh, I asked him, I, 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 as I got into the nitty gritty of his business, I asked him, hey, you know, your salary is like thirty or $40,000 higher than the average salary of the other people, owners in your business. How come? And so we, we were having lunch and we were having a couple of beers. And you know, I guess, you know, alcohol lo loosens lips, right? So he, <laughs> he confided yeah. to me that, uh, every Wednesday, he hired a prostitute, and they, he bought he bought her dinner. He went out to dinner. They had a bunch of wine. That was his Wednesday night. He was divorced. He had been divorced for a little while, and this was his, I guess, his outlet. I don't know, but that cost him like a thousand dollars. Cost him like a thousand dollars a week. That'll do and it so to I you. Did, I did the math. I said, no wonder he needs forty thousand dollars more a year. This, I said, he has this you know, one character flaw. So um, I said, Jesus, maybe there's more to this than meets the eye on why people fail in life. So I started, uh, I started doing a study. Uh, and so that was in 2004. That's kind of what, yeah. and, that was like I, the genesis of this. Yeah. I, I started studying uh, wealthy people and I, I kept going for like three years on the wealthy people. I finished, I, I just, I, I raised the white flag after like, I think 233 wealthy people. That's why the number is so odd. I just, I just said enough is enough. I, and then I remember coming home. I, I told my wife, Hey, I finished that. You know, that study that I was working on on with why rich people are rich. And I was asking them all these questions. I had like 144 questions. I was asking them about their lives. You know, I wanted to find out what they did from the minute they woke up in the morning to the minute they went to bed. So I had these 144 questions that kind of covered everything. And uh, she, I, saw, I told her that and she said, that's great. Uh, now that you know what to do, uh, what are the poor people do, doing that makes them poor? And so I, 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 re I remember it was like a, an epiphany. It was like a light bulb moment. And I said, Christ, you know, it, it's not enough to know success habits or what to do. You also have to know what not to do. Uh, and so I ended up spending another year and a half studying, uh, asking 128 poor people the same 144 questions. And then I, I consolidated all of that, all their responses, that data into uh, Excel worksheets and into something I called the, re the Rich Habits uh, Research Summary. And when I, was, when I was studying it, I realized, Brian, that most of these things are habits. So that's yep. kind of what what got me, you know, on the rich habits uh, journey. Got it. Got it. And if if I could take it, that was a great kind of, uh, you know, summary of a, of a very long journey there. But if I could take you all the way back to the beginning real quick, especially for our younger listeners. So like at what what age was it that you left Arthur Anderson and you kind of like really went into the, the corporate world and um had that that first switch that first switch in your job like yeah. whereabouts were you i think so it was your late 20s 30s or yeah i was 28 or 29 years old okay right? and when you said like at that stage like looking back now where you're at today those early years that first maybe decade after college is that like a regret of yours i know that you said you put your ladder on on your dad's wall as opposed to your own where you see a lot of these successful people kind of 
chase their passion right away. Mm-hmm. Was that a regret or do you think that's just kind of a, a normal course of action that you got to kind of find your way and, and then later on you'll really find out, you know, what you're built for? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, the, the, the short answer is that I absolutely 100% regret it. I, really? I had no business being an accountant because I didn't have a passion for it. I like the tax. Don't get me wrong. The tax part, <clears throat> the consulting and, and being a virtuoso and an expert in tax, that kind of that kind of got me off. You know, I like that. I like knowing stuff that that made me an expert. Yeah. Uh, but um, and then as a CFO, I, like once you got to that level now, kind of like a pinnacle of sorts in that realm, was that something you said, you know, here I am like this is what I what I'm made for? Or are you still kind of were successful, no. but looking elsewhere? No, I, I, I absolutely knew almost <clears throat> almost all the way until I ran into the rich habits. I knew I was doing the wrong thing in life. <clears throat> I just knew it intuitively. I didn't, and and I, it's funny because I just wrote an article about this that's gonna I'm releasing this week, and it's basically how to find your main purpose in life. And you know the thing is, um, we all have unique innate talents, and when when you're when you uh, pursue whatever you do for a living. And that is uh, using some innate talent that you possess. That's when you have found your your main purpose in life. And 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 how you know that you found an innate talent is it's just easier for you than for everybody else. You're almost a quick study at it. It's like you were genetically predisposed to do it, right? And uh, so at 48 years old, after I finished my study. I did these uh, rich habits learning sessions and I think I did about 10 or 11 or 12 of them. And I had yeah. a, in my conference room, you could only fit about 12, 10 or 12 people. So I would offer the learning sessions for free to whoever showed up, I, you know, put an ad out and I would get about 10, at least 10 people in the room. Uh, and I, and it was interesting. I did this over the course of about six months and some of the people came back to me like months later uh, and they they said, my God, you know, I'm making more money just following your, these rich habits. I focus really rich rich habits surrounding, you know, goals, pursuing goals, how to create goals around your dreams. And, um, and how did you real quick, how did you define like a, the quote unquote rich person? And how did you define the poor person? Like after you, you met study, this guy that's, you know, he's having a tough time. He's seeing these prostitutes. Business is going south. Yeah. And you say, all right, I've got this epiphany. I want to study these people and figure it out. Who was who? How did you define them? Well, that so that's another good question. So I, you know, I had to uh, lean on the CPA financial planning industry to. So I, I kind of looked at WealthX puts out a, a report every year, and and some other organizations uh, put out reports on you know who's wealthy, what's wealth, the IRS. Uh, the Tax Foundation puts out a report that on uh, you know IRS d- data on who the f- top five percent are, and and so I, <clears throat> I I looked at all that stuff and I said, well, it looks like uh, to be considered wealthy, you really have to pass two tests. Tests. One is uh, you have to have about 3.2 million in net liquid uh, net wealth, net liquid wealth, whatever you want to you know, net investable assets, we call them in the financial planning industry. And you have to have at least $160,000 of income a year, 160,000 or more. So those, I, I decided that those were going to be my two criteria. So, you know, I probably, I probably ran into about 400 wealthy people who most people would consider wealthy. And I had to, I, I, they just didn't meet my, my definition. All of them, I 233 did. And, um, and so I, I, I use that as my, my template. And then on the poor side, I decided that you're poor based on a lot of the research I'd done. If you made uh, less than $35,000 a year and you had less than $5,000 in the bank, essentially. Okay. Uh, so th- those are my criteria for defining the rich and the poor. Got it. And then how did, what, did you just start 
cold calling people or you were going through your own book of business to find these folks or how did that? Yeah, so initially, of course, right, you go for the low hanging fruit, the people that you know, and that's my clients. So I started doing that. But, you know, we, we have like a thousand clients here and there's a lot of them are wealthy. That's why they come to CPAs. Um, yep. But uh, I said, you know, I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to reach out to other people. So I started offering, I, I started offering, I, I put ads out in, in magazines and newspapers about uh, free tax consulting. And in some case, preparing your tax return for free uh, for, you know, for a year or two. And uh, just to get the wealthy people in the door, uh, they, the wealthy people, you know, they're, they're less apt to leave their CPA. So most of them, said, oh, I'll take the free tax consulting and, and stuff. So so over the course of you know a couple of years, I, I offered this free tax consulting to the non-clients as a way of asking them the questions. I, and I never, the, the key here is I never wanted them to know I was asking them questions for what I called my rich habit study. I wanted it to be a blind study because- uh, Really, so you were, you were asking these questions, kind of taking mental notes. Without them knowing not, where not just where mental notes. I had a I had a, a, a process. I had a, a sheets of paper and I would write down the answers to different questions. So I might hit I might hit them, you know, on one phone call or one meeting. I might hit I might get five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten answers. <clears throat> then another phone call I might get more. And so I I kind of that's why it took so long. And, and the the average millionaire it took me like a year and a half to get through all the the questions right. So, uh, but, and then it took it like 18 months because you can imagine I had all of this information on sheets of paper. I had to bring it into an Excel worksheet and categorize it somehow. And, and, and that's, you know, that took, that took so long, uh, the analysis part, but, uh, anyway, wow. so I, I did, oh, I did cool. it. Yeah. And then this cool. study, this, this became your first book, correct? Rich habits, poor habits. Yeah. And so this is where it kind of gets cool. So. One of the one of the people in my learning sessions, more than one, but one of them actually said, "You've got to write a book on this because I just made an extra hundred thousand dollars following you know your rich habits uh, that I was teaching," and I said, "Wow, that's that's amazing." And then another guy said, "I made an extra like fifty thousand." Another guy's part, woman said she made like forty thousand. I said, "Wow, this is this is weird, you know this these, these things actually do work." Um, so. Uh, and I knew they worked, Brian, because I had, I had, I had followed. I was following some of the rich habits, particularly the ones around uh, calorie restriction and, and exercise and, and stuff like that. I was always, always an athlete, uh, but you know, when you're working around the clock, you know, sometimes exercise becomes uh, it gets put put on the shelf, you know. So yep. I had ballooned up to like 212 pounds. I remember it was in July of 2007, and uh, I used the what I call the tracking schedule that one of the millionaires in my study had sent me on Excel. I modified it to, you know, to, so I could use it, and I followed this tracking schedule from July 07 until uh, February of 08. And what it did is it basically tracked every day. It tracked how many calories you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and how much exercise in terms of minutes you engaged in, aerobic exercise primarily, uh, but then I added weight, weightlifting because I lift weights. And okay. uh, so I- um, So I these habits to... relating to calories and to exercise, they yeah, were I, real yeah. ones that stuck out to you on, on rich versus poor? Yeah, those, I mean, that to me, that, that was something that I felt was one of the rich habits that I could, I could, you could see results from pretty quickly, you know, because most of the rich habits take years and years, particularly the ones surrounding uh, building wealth. Oh, they can take as, as long as 32 years to, to build the wealth that, that makes you a millionaire in my study anyway. Um, so, um, but, but it, it worked. I look, I went down, I went from 212 pounds down to 174 pounds wow. and I said, holy crap this stuff does work. So I became like, uh, ironically, one of the, you know, devotees to the rich habit, my own rich habits study. I started following, I, I created a rich habits checklist and I follow, I followed it for many years. Uh, and, um, and, and it, and 
anyway, one of the one of the people in my study said, you know, you got to write a book about this. And I said, uh, I never wrote a book before. I don't even know where to start. So my, my rule of thumb is always if I don't know something, if I'm starting from scratch, read three books on it. Uh, so I read three books on how to write a book. And, and I came to the conclusion after doing all that reading that it was a lot easier to write a book than it was to to take to study for and pass the CPA exam. <laughs> I bet. So, so I uh, it took me about uh, it took me two tries and 18 months to get what became Rich Habits uh, finished. And I couldn't find a, a publisher. I went to 144 literary agents. They all turned me down. I went to 128 publishers and all but one turned me down. The one that said yes uh, went bankrupt after three months of working with them. Oh, and uh, I ended up self-publishing. And okay. I, you know, I didn't know anything about the book industry. I didn't know anything about promoting or any of that stuff. Didn't know, you know, you wrote a book, you know what, it, what it's like. And I, you and I had a conversation yeah. one time about it. It's not easy. Yeah, it's tough sledding early on, for sure. Yeah, it's a struggle. So it took a, I remember that that Rich Habits book. It was a great book. I knew it. I knew I, I hit it out of the park, and I just intuitively knew that. And I it didn't sell any any books. I mean, I think I sold 500 books in three years. And uh, I even quit on it. And I ended up writing another book that I spent uh, six months doing research on called the uh, top 100 cheapest places to retire in the U S and I, uh, because that was um, real time data, you know, the tax laws changed, the crime rates changed, uh, the re real estate taxes changed value values on homes changed. So, you know, I, I had all these variables, 10 of them that I was tracking to get the cheapest place to retire in the U S uh, and uh, I ended up writing a book on that. And um, I, I, I said, you know, I, I've got to promote this to the media because if that's the only way I'm going to sell any, any of these books. So I, I ended up getting a, an interview with AOL and I sold about 7,000 books after the interview aired. And that's when it, I, did, I realized, holy crap, uh, if you want to sell books, you got to conquer the media. Yep. Yeah, and it's. I think that's true in, in any venture that you take is, you know, you could be a genius, but until it gets exposed to the world, you know, nobody knows. So yeah. it's, you got to somehow get it in front of people. That's yeah, interesting. So I, I never realized that all that, you, that you didn't even mean for all that to become a book. I mean, what you were just doing this huge study. What was it for? Just like your own knowledge or what was like the end game? You know, I, I had, we were rich when I grew up, when I was, when I, my family my my dad was ve we were very wealthy. He was a very successful businessman, and then he lost everything overnight. I think I was in the third grade when it happened, and so we became poor literally overnight. And so I guess this was kind of uh, something that I carried with me my whole life. This rich poor stuff, and uh, when that when that business client of mine came into the office. Uh, and broke down and started crying, I kind of, it stirred the emotions inside me. And I guess it rekindled all of these, you wow. know, old feelings that I had. Feels like time. deja vu all over again. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I said, I've got to find out what the hell causes people to be rich and poor. I said, I'm not going to stop until I find the answer. And I didn't. Hmm. And I found the it answer. I mean, that's a great book. I, I've read it, you know, myself. I'm a big fan. But can you share with some of the people out there that maybe haven't read it yet? Was there one or two things that really jump off the pages that that helped launch people, or on the flip side, one or two things that send people onto that poor side? Um, if maybe a couple yeah. habits really stuck out. So, so this kind of dovetails into what I, we were talking about initially. Is I discovered in my research that there were, and I think this is maybe the most profound discovery in my space, in the self-improvement space industry. And it's that there is more, there's more than one way to get wealthy. And I actually identified four paths to wealth. There's the saver investor path, which you and I kind of deal with on a day-to-day -day basis with our financial planning businesses, right? Yep. It's people that, that um, save money and then prudently and consistently invest that, that money. Uh, and then, 
there's the big company path, this what I call the climber path, the senior executive path. These are people, and we, you and I both know a lot of these people who work for big companies, and they climb the ladder and they reach, you know, the upper echelons, and and you know, like eighty percent of their compensation is stock compensation, and that eighty percent of the wealth is stock compensation. Uh, and then there's the what I call the virtuoso path. This is the path that. I was on for a little, you know, for a large part of my life. And this is becoming the best at what you do, whatever it is that you do, uh, becoming an expert in it. And that means you have to not only gain, have expertise in, in terms of knowledge, you have to have expertise in terms of your skill set. Uh, and so, you know, the knowledge part means you got to have certain rich habits every day, like reading to learn 30 to 60 minutes a day. It, it, it could mean practicing uh, deliberate practice, analytical practice, if it's skill-based. Uh, so you have to maybe devote two or three or four hours a day to practicing your skills over and over again. Uh, so, you know, each one of these paths, and, and oh, the last path is the dreamer entrepreneur path, which is yep. kind of what I'm on right now. Uh, but each one, what was it, what's interesting is each one of these paths has specific rich habits and each and every, not every person is right for each path, path. So for example, I'm not right for the saver investor path. Uh, it's just not in my DNA. Uh, I'm probably more uh, right for the virtuoso and, and certainly for the dreamer entrepreneur path. And I found out the hard way, I'm not right for the big company senior executive path. I couldn't stand that. Uh, so okay. everybody's personality is different. And, and so the path, I think the problem is people, like I said, put their ladder on somebody else's wall. They, they might pursue a path that's just not right for their personality type. Got it. And I think that's a great point because so many people listen to our show and a lot of the conversations we have is about entrepreneurship and ideas and kind of pursuing that passion. So you're saying, you know, that it doesn't have to always be kind of like what you read about in a book. Like you could be a teacher, a police officer, um, someone in the W2 world, and maybe you just take that other path of that saver or investor path. Uh, to try and get to that wealthy stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as you know, and the saving investor path is really great for people who are really risk averse. They they just they grew up in you know whatever their background and their, their upbringing, where their parents were afraid of taking risk, uh, and so you you develop habits in that environment that are perfect for being a saver investor. You know, you're you're frugal. You live below your means, you save money consistently. Uh, and then there are people that are raised in families where, you know, maybe one or more parents uh, work for a big company and you say, well, you know, that's the path. I, I have clients that, you know, who, who, the father was a senior executive uh, for a big multinational company. Guess what his kid's doing now? He's a senior executive at a big multinational company doing just as well as his father did. You know, so, you know, the, there are, we, we follow typically follow the paths that our parents kind of guide us down and yep. and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong in my case i have to assume my father hated being an accountant because i don't like the accounting part of my life you know it's it's i don't like sitting behind a desk for 10 hours a day you know punching in a keyboard and, and that kind of stuff i i hate it I like being out and about and talking to people and teaching people and and, and building relationships and things like that. And so I, 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 you know, and I so I know my father didn't like his accounting. He couldn't have because it's in it's in my genes. Yeah. <clears throat> so you have to, you know, kind of find out what what your upbringing is, what, you know, you got to fit yourself into the, the right circle. Uh, if you don't, you're going to. You know, you're going to it's going to show up in your paycheck and just not sure. going to like what you do for a living. And Tom, a quick question. So you, let's say somebody's on one of these paths and they're saying, you know what, I'm here right now, but I want to be somewhere else. This isn't you know, this isn't just doing it for me. <laughs> what would you say to someone that says, all right, you know, I, I know I want to make a switch. Should they kind of take that like, you know, burn the ship's mentality of I'm, I'm going to jump you know, off the ledge and go to this new thing that I think is my passion? And there's no way out, you know, I'm going all in. Or do you promote or condone more of kind of a, a slow and steady segue from where you're at right now, the family's comfortable, you know, paycheck is there, and then kind of baby step, you know, over to that that new venture. 
which yeah. what do you what do you think people should do when they have that epiphany yeah it's 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 completely unrealistic to jump ship you, you know you have to live in the real world the real world is you need that paycheck right so you've got to do that nine to five job you got to do your work uh, and then you've got the mornings you've got night and you've got the weekends to that, that you know i wrote rich i did my study and i wrote rich habits all from 4 30 in the morning pretty much at least the book part from 4 30 in the morning to 7 in the morning and then at from eight at night to about 9 30 to 10 at night i wrote rich habits during those hours because okay. i was running and now are the kids out of the house at this point if you don't mind or like what stage of life no, they, they were so that's a good point right so so um i still had brendan my oldest he was he had just started college when i i started writing rich habits and uh my girls were kind of getting up there in, in high school so i you know we didn't have <clears throat> as much of the weekend commitment to stuff that we and nighttime commitment sometimes you got to go to baseball practice after, after work you know well you can't write a book while you're sitting in base, baseball while you're, while you're coaching your son's team or your girl's soccer team right after yep. work so yeah you got you know you got to live within the confines of your life so maybe you can't do it after work maybe the only time to do it as i found the best time was early in the morning because my kids and my wife weren't waking up until seven in the morning and at seven in the morning trust me brian at seven in the morning uh my, you know my wife was screaming down the basement come out of your hole uh you gotta help me with you know the kids and whatever but, so <laughs> i i you know my i guess my point was i had less of that because the kids were a little bit older. Uh, so yeah. I had a little bit more time that I normally, I wouldn't have had 10 years earlier. Yeah, because uh, I find that with a lot of people I talk to, and even I personally struggle with this, is there's so many things you want to do from your business to your passion projects, to your family, to your exercising, that usually what I found a lot of people I talk to, it's like, well, if you want to do it all and you really want to pursue that, what's going to go is sleep you know that that's the one thing you kind of have to say all right well i'm going to wake up an hour earlier or i'm going to stay up an hour later and that's where you can fit in that one other you know kind of uh, venture that you're trying to pursue yeah well that that's fine as long as you're going from say eight hours sleep to seven hours sleep but i do a lot of research on sleep because uh the one of the functions there's a couple of functions in sleep and one of the functions is is memory retention and the other function is cleaning out uh, the waste products from the brain. Uh, so if the average person needs about seven hours of sleep to do those things, you, you know, if you like, I just think about it, you're pursuing something part-time and you're learn, you have to learn all of this new information, maybe even new skills. Well, when you get, if you don't get enough sleep, it's as if everything you did the day before went out the window because it doesn't get uh, stored into long-term memory. You need seven hours sleep so that you can't cut sleep. If you do, you're never going to succeed. Uh, okay. The best way to do it. If, if you think, you know, our, our president, Donald Trump, one of the things he said going way back to when, mm -hmm. you know, he's building his, his real estate empire, a, a lot of times he would talk about, oh, he only requires four hours, maybe five hours of sleep. And you hear that and it's like, man, is this guy living so much more life and has so much more opportunity just because he has so many more hours in a day than the rest of us? Um, so I think a lot of people think about that. But then, of course, the health effects you have to consider. So, so here's the thing about Donald Trump, because he's a freak of nature. Um, there are <laughs> freaks of nature like Donald Trump that only need four or five hours sleep. The, the, the key to getting adequate sleep is four sleep cycles. Most people, that's like 90 seven percent of the population requires uh, 60 to 90 minutes per sleep cycle during each sleep cycle uh, a lot of things are going on there's there's memory consolidation the hippocampus is sending information hippocampus is where short-term memory is stored information you, you gather during the day it it, process, it it shoots it back and forth to the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex finds a place to store that data uh, and so this goes on during all during the night in deep sleep, and um, it's called delta sleep, uh, delta slash REM sleep. 
So you, what happens is you, you've got this memory consolidation going on four times during the night. Now, if you're not getting four sleep cycles, you, you know, that's a problem. But interestingly, there was a recent study that was done uh, that, that found out that there are some people like Donald Trump who can complete four sleep cycles in as, in as little as 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So he is essentially, there's no health, ill health effects for those people. They're freaks of nature, but, but you can't depend on that. You have to assume you're not a freak of nature and that you've got to get at least 60, at least four sleep cycles in, which is, you know, probably about seven hours of sleep. Okay. And while we're kind of on that, in that vein, would you mind sharing with, with all of us and the listeners out there, like, what is a a normal day like for you? Like, do you have a routine or is it kind of like every day's different and you're running all over the place? What's that typically like? So I get this question so often. I ended up writing an article about it. I have a routine that I've been following since I started writing my, my rich habits books. And I basically get up at four 30 in the morning. Now this morning I got up at three 30 in the morning. Uh, I just got up. I was ready to go. I might have something to do with daylight savings time. I don't know, but I got up at three thirty, and um, I I I spent like instead of you know my two and a half hours of work, I did three and a half hours of work in the morning. Now, what I do in the morning uh, is important. Uh, I read for an hour. A lot of it is CPA, financial planning, and studies on uh, surrounding the rich habits. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll use yeah, typically... you breakfast like 3.30 in the morning. Or do you have a big omelet in front of you or you're just sitting down with your magazine or your journal? No, I, I do intermittent fasting, so I, I never eat breakfast. Uh, so I uh, and I, I might have a cup of coffee when I'm doing the social media part of my rich habits business, which is usually a half an hour out of my morning time. Uh, so I'll get my cup of coffee. I'll sit down and I'll start doing my, my responding to emails. I get, probably get about 20 emails a day uh, from readers all around the world. I have to respond to comments on my blogs. I might get like four or five or six a day, depending. If I have a media article that gets published and it goes viral, I'll have 150, 200. So I, I always have to earmark more time when that happens. And it does happen, you know, three or four times a year. Uh, and so I um, I kind of uh, do, you know, have a routine where I'm reading, I'm writing, uh, I'm reading slash studying, I'm writing, I'm, I'm responding to my rich habits followers and, and, and you know, via email, social media and stuff like that. And then at seven o'clock, I, I, I stop everything and I go to the gym. I run four or five days a week and I lift two to three days a week. So okay. I, seven o'clock to seven o'clock to eight in the morning is when I do that. And then I head off uh, to work, which is, uh, you know, here, here in Aberdeen. So I, uh, that's like a 20, 25 minute commute. And then I'm usually in the office at nine, nine, 10 or something like that. Okay. So and you've I, had a pretty full day so far already. <laughs> What's that? I said, you've had a pretty full day already. And then it's nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Well, here's the yeah. cool, here's the cool yeah. thing, Brian. Sure. It doesn't even feel like work to me because I love doing it so much. And this is the, why finding your main purpose in life is this is really the fast track to becoming wealthy and successful. I, those three and a half hours fly by. I, I can't. The reason I can get up at 430 in the morning is because I can't wait to get up at, four, till, at 430 in the morning. I can't wait to start reading uh, stuff that's going to help me with my rich habits and business. And, and now that my rich habits and CPA and financial planning business is kind of all integrated, it's I just can't wait to get up in the morning. It's I found my main purpose in life at age 48. And uh, I consider myself lucky because most people never find it. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Better late than never. And I, I think it's true. A lot of people just you get stuck in a mold and it's hard to break that sometimes. So what's what would you like your overarching message be? I think it was really nice how you broke down these four paths here, which, again, were the saver investor path the big company path, and then the virtuoso or expert kind of path, and then the dreamer path. So would your big message be, you know, for each individual, find out what path is your calling? Is that that the message here? 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's where it all begins. And I think that's that's the, probably the most profound discovery I made in my rich habits, besides the rich habits and the poor habits. I think that's because if you, you can have all the rich habits in the world, right, Brian, and be doing something you hate and not get, really get anywhere. Because to be honest with you, you're not going to be devoting yourself to some of the rich habits that you you should be engaging in, like like the reading, the uh, deliberate and analytical practice that you, and for skill based uh, careers. So you're just you're just gonna feel like a fish out of water. That's a good way to put it. And uh, you're not gonna really make a lot of money. So you got to get it right out of the gate. And it, uh, when I say out of the gate, uh, boy, if you can get it right right out of college. There is absolutely, I'm convinced there's absolutely 100% that you're going to become a multimillionaire, 100%. Uh, but most people don't get it right out of the gate. It took me until for age 48 to, to get it right. Um, so it's going to take some time. It's going to take some experimentation. That's why I'm a big advocate for experimenting, doing it on the side in the mornings. Experiment on something new, something outside your comfort zone, something you know, if you're a CPA, what's the opposite of being a CPA? Being a writer, right? So that that was really uncomfortable for me. But man, I, I, I discovered that I had an innate talent. I just was naturally gifted at writing. I had no clue. Uh, so you got to experiment. That's the only way you're going to find out if you're any good at if you have an innate talent. And then when you find that innate talent, you're going to know it because it just it's you love doing it and it comes so easy to you writing you know i read i read about these writers uh some of them famous writers who who get writer's block do you know i have never had one day that i've had writer's block if anything i have too much to write about and i can't <laughs> i can't fit it all in so it's i am absolutely a hundred percent convinced that i found my main purpose in life because i uncovered an innate talent and here's the thing you know how do you how do you know so i'll put it to you as a question how do you know if you've you've stumbled onto your main purpose in life the answer is you know if you have any doubt then you haven't the answer is you haven't stumbled on your main purpose in life you just absolutely intuitively know that what you're doing is the right thing to do and um, nobody can tell you otherwise i like that that's very well said and so going back to, again, the, let's look at the young professional. I, I know you hear a lot of people out there, whether it's mentors, parents, they say, hey, go for this job. You got to see the discontent, you know, kind of push through that. The last thing you want is to have all these different places on your resume and that you, you've got a reputation that you bounce around. Do you believe in that or do you think that they should say, you know what, I don't really like this right now. Let me go experiment somewhere else and have 10 careers by the time they're 30 as opposed to one. Like, if you're if you're a dreamer entrepreneur, then I would say experiment. <clears throat> if you're uh, a saver investor, meaning you're risk averse, you don't want to take risks, you're conservative about everything you do, then the saver investor path is for you. Just get a job, and and say you know, it doesn't mean you're going to love the job, but you're certainly not going to uh, pursue uh, something that you're passionate about because the risk is going to prevent your fear is going to hold you back. Fear of risk is going to hold you back. So there's nothing you can do about that. People are genetically predisposed to be risk averse. And I'm convinced of that. So just, just uh, settle into the saver investor path, but make sure you're saving 20% or more of your income and investing it prudently. And guess what? In about 15 to 20 years, you'll be able to make any decision you want about your career because you'll Got probably it. have a couple of million dollars saved up. And then Understood. there are some, there are other people, Brian, that are really good politicians. Like they, they are just good schmoozers. Now they should be salespeople or they should be corporate climbers, right? Because they're great at managing relationships. They're great at, at building those, what I call gold plated or rich relationships. So, that, so if that's your personality type, become a salesperson or climb the corporate ladder. If you're the kind of person that loves to sit, you know, you don't want to deal with people. You hate people. Maybe you hate people. Um, I, my brother-in-law is like that. He worked for Goldman Sachs for like 25 years. He said he didn't want to deal with anybody. So he was in the back office and he was ha perfectly happy there. Uh, well, then you should be, become a virtuoso. 
This way, and do you find real quick? Do you find people maybe shift on these paths? Because I think as we're having this conversation, I even think about myself where I would say I'm definitely in that dreamer or virtuoso space where I'm always on to a new venture, whether it's within my financial business, uh, my financial advisory practice, or the podcast, or the books, or the writing, or real estate. But then there are days where I'm like, you know what? I wish I could just kind of wake up, have somebody tell me what to do for the next three <laughs> hours, and then you know get my paycheck and be like, all right, that was easy enough. Do you yeah. ever crave those days, or is that normal? Oh my God, the the stress. Uh, I can't. I, this is a whole nother podcast, but I have to tell you, the you know, even though I found my main purpose in life, it's been a walk through hell. Uh, I wouldn't wish this journey on my worst enemy. I really wouldn't. It's, but I love it. And, and it's, you know, the thing is, I'm never going to stop doing, it. I'll do it till the day I die. But yeah, of course I do. But it's, I know the thing is, you're never going to go. You're never going to go from being a saver investor type to a dreamer entrepreneur type. And you're probably not going to go from being a person that likes to, you know, doesn't like people to being a salesman or, or a, a climber type. It's, it's just not going to happen. Uh, I doubt that you're going to change during your life, but you can change from being a virtuoso to, a, to uh, an, entre, an entrepreneur type. You can change from being uh, a virtuoso to being a saver investor, right? Because that's not a far, that's not a far cry, right? You can, you can say, well, you know what, I'm actually a, probably a lot of virtu virtuosos are also saver investors. They're probably the two that are most directly linked. And I would say uh, the, the climber path, the CEO climber path and the entrepreneur dreamer path are probably closely linked. So, you know, there are some crossovers for sure. I know in my, in, in my own self-assessment that I am the uh, virtuoso slash dreamer entrepreneur personality type. Got it. Got it. And now what's next for my question? What's next for Tom Corley? I mean, you, you're kind of, it sounds like you really hit your stride over the past, you know, several years. Where yeah. do you see the future? Is it more of the same or is there some big next step that, that you're pursuing or thinking about where are you going? Well, a little bit more of the same and a little bit big step. Uh, so I I'm coming out with a book called effortless wealth. It's really focusing on the, the uh, saver investor path. Uh, and it's perfect for what we do, Brian. It's, it's you know, we cater to people who have some net investable assets that they've accumulated over their lifetime. So you know, that that book is all about how to get, uh, become a multimillionaire uh, through the saver investor path. And uh, and what I love about it is, is it's the path that doesn't require that you take significant risks. It doesn't require that you have any expert skills. Uh, doesn't require that you work a hundred hours a week. So, you know, that's the effortless part, if you will, of, of becoming wealthy. And the other thing I'm doing is uh, I've been more and more every year I get requests for speaking engagements. And after I do the speaking engagement, they always ask me back and I get paid for it. You know, I get paid a lot of money, but I haven't pursued it as a, a revenue stream, you know? Uh, so 2020, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, really uh, turn that revenue stream on. I'm going to go out there and uh, I'm going to become uh, a real, you know, you know, one of those speakers that you see like Robin Sharma or Dr. Daniel Amen. I'm going to okay. be doing probably, uh, my goal is to get up to about 100 speaking engagements a year. And so, do you do that? Just out of curiosity, do you do that with a PR person or a PR team, or is that that's all just fed off of itself organically? Up until this point, it's been just me, and uh, it it the number of paid speaking engagements rises and falls depending on the uh, media publicity that I get, and I I'm I'm in the media all the time, but not every thing goes viral. The ones that do go viral, I get I. I'll get four or five requests in, in one week to, to speak. Uh, so, so what I've done that's different is I've hired a speaker speaking coach, not to help me speak because I actually am a better speaker than the speaking coach. I've watched him and I, and I, I just, I, it's another gift that I discovered that I have an innate talent. So uh, I need his help 
in helping me process this? How, how do you actually go about securing speaking engagements? He has a Rolodex, an envious Rolodex that he's willing to share with me. So, you know, with his help, he'll, hopefully he'll be my speaking speaker coach for the rest of my uh, life. Okay. All right. That's great. And now what I got to do, if we can kind of uh, transition a little bit, this is what many of our listeners consider to be the favorite part of the show, and that's the lightning round. Mm-hmm. And so if you haven't listened uh, recently, what we do, we just run through some quick questions with quick answers just to get to know you a little bit better and see kind of what makes you tick. So you okay if we just dive right into that? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Awesome. So for Tom Corley, ladies and gentlemen, what is your favorite book? Oh, the greatest salesman that ever lived. All right. And if you, I got it. Yeah, I've heard that one before too. That's a good one. And if you had a quote to live by or a motto that you'd want to share with everyone, what would it be? Oh, it's 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 I love the Winston Churchill quote where he says, If you find yourself in hell, keep on walking until you walk the hell out of there. <laughs> I love it. That's great. What's uh, your favorite vacation or destination you've traveled to? I I just love the Jersey Shore, Brian. I've been everywhere. I've been to Australia. I've been to Vietnam. I've been to all over the place. The Jersey Shore is the best place in the world. Awesome. Okay. And oh, considering all those travels, what's your favorite food or meal that you've had? Uh, everywhere I go, steak seems to be my favorite meal. Steak. Okay. And we touched a little bit on this, but how much do you sleep at night? I get between seven and a half and eight hours sleep. Okay. And who was your hero growing up as a kid? I had no hero. My hero now is J.C. Jobs, who's the main character uh, in my books. I wish I had a hero, somebody to look up to, but I didn't. Okay. And what's your favorite movie of all time? Um, oh, boy, that's a good one. I... I have so many of them, but people are going to think I'm crazy, but I, I think Dumb and Dumber is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> what a classic. I love <laughs> it. And now, obviously, you're a CPA by trade, went into all these other paths that we've discussed. What was your favorite subject when you were growing up, your favorite school subject? Marketing. Marketing. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, that kind of concludes our talk today. Is there anything, any parting message that you'd like to leave with our listeners as they're tuning in every week and trying to find out which path is theirs and and what ultimately is going to achieve their state of well-being and their state of wealth? Yeah. So, you know, the only way that you're going to uh, get from point A to point B is by growing. And in order to grow, you have to learn. So you can, I, every day, uh, like I said, I'm doing research every day. I put out a tip of the morning to you on richhabits.net. So, I mean, if you want, if you subscribe to richhabits.net, you're going to get that tip of the morning to you. And there's all sorts of other crap on there too. I, I, I'm, it's, it's a free subscription, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the way I, uh, I teach right now. You got it. And that was richhabits.net. Yeah. Okay, great. And any new, um, you mentioned there's a book coming out, like what should everybody that's that's now wanting to follow Tom Corley, what should they keep an eye out for? Yeah, Effortless Wealth is going to be coming out uh, probably in January. I'm working with my publisher right now on, on fine tuning it. They're working on the cover. We've got a, the manuscript has some edits we have to uh, fix. But uh, my guess is uh, it'll probably be done by by the end of November. And it's December, they'll probably start uh, finalizing everything, the inside of the book and the outside of the book. And then it'll probably be released in January. So that's going to be my, you know, my, my big, my big thing. I usually write a book every two or three years. And this is, you know, this is it. And the the cool thing about this book is uh, I have two main, three characters in the book. JC Jobs is one of them, but there's the rich neighbor and the poor neighbor and the rich neighbor is, is my best friend from Staten Island, Tom Howie, who uh, retired at age 52, uh, a gazillionaire. So Tom's the rich neighbor and I use all of his information. There's everything about the rich neighbor is him. Okay. Interesting. That'd be pretty cool. And again, that's called effortless wealth. Yep. All right. Awesome. 
Well, it's been a real pleasure, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and today we've had on the show Tom Corley. And thanks again for appearing on the show, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. All righty. And everyone else, keep tuning in, keep leaving us a good review, and we'll see you next week. The Kaderna podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors, or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS, 300 Broad Acres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, products, services, and advisory services are offered through PASS, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Nine 73244420. Financial representative, the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Passes an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Pass or Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of FINRA, SIPC. California Insurance License Number, OK04194. Content of the Caderna Podcast is copyright of Brian M. Caderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Caderna Podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of, of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries, or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.